This podcast is a member of WGPRN, WildGamesProductions.com. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Requiem for a Masquerade Part 3. Tonight, I'm joined by Mark of the Liquid Weird Podcast. How are you, Mark? Hey, doing all right. Doing pretty good. Great. So, for those of you that haven't run into Mark uh, on like RPG.net or listened to his podcast, he's probably one of the most opinionated people when it comes to White Wolf games. Isn't that right? Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I'm mostly tongue-in-cheek, which it doesn't really come across all that well. Hmm. So I sound a little crazier than I am, unfortunately. No, it's all right. So tonight we're going to be talking about the Vampire Translation documents, which was they were finally released um, just after Thanksgiving, if I remember correctly. All right. Yeah, so it's taken us a little while to get to it, but uh, I'm very excited to discuss it. So just to uh, get started, when you first open this up, actually, when you look at the front cover, it's very cool. It's a combination of the old uh, Vampire 2nd Edition green marble cover and the Vampire the Requiem cover. So it's got the bloody red hand and the rose petals kind of drifting off in the wind it's very cool looking what do you think of that mark i think it's pretty cool although it did take me a minute to figure out that was a hand at first yeah it does look pretty good though i mean every time i would see that kind of marble out in the wild as it were i'd always think about vampires and And actually uh, if you look at the back cover i just want to make uh, a funny comment about this the first thing it says is have you always wanted to include the ravnos in your requiem game and first thing I thought was, absolutely not. I'm glad they're gone. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Freaking Ravnon. I mean, they're fun and cool in all in one way, but yeah. Well, everything, every single time I've seen someone play Ravnos, mm, just never was done right. Yeah, I, I don't think illusion powers are all that thematic for a vampire in general. And, um, well, here I go again, but frankly, they're... Was, the Ravnos thing was just one more portrayal of uh, of uh, a people or culture that I think they just didn't. Uh, this is just hearsay. I'm not sure about this, but I'm thinking that certain anti-defamation groups got onto them about their portrayal. Uh, I remember in uh, I know in the uh, Mind's Eye Theater, Old World Mind's Eye Theater books, and I not I know we're not getting into that stuff at this point, which is good because I have no end of complaints about that stuff. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, huge larger, but still. Anyway, actually uh, said, even though not all Sabat Ravners are whirlwinds of deceit, like their main clan or something like that, uh, even though they don't have Romani blood, they're still whirlwinds of deceit. I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> you know, a little bit much. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. All right, so when you first open this up, you're going to get a uh, a brief introduction section, which talks about uh, the differences between Requiem and Masquerade gives you some of the background of when the games were published. It's really nothing too special, especially if you just look on Wikipedia or something. Sure, sure. But I think it's a, it's good information to have. Nice little reminder. And on page six, you get your first piece of full color artwork, which is pretty exciting because we never had full color with Vampire the Masquerade. And I do kind of want to bring up a, a point about this. Well, originally I was really excited about the full color artwork. I don't mean to be too critical, but it doesn't really speak to me like some of the old Masquerade artwork did with, you know, leather and chains and all that. 
Yeah, well, they got a, they got a lot away from the leather and chains and bikers, and they took the um, the, the old gothic punk. They never stopped saying gothic punk milieu, like it was going out of style. Apparently, it went out of style because they got rid of the punk part for the most part. Yeah, it's it definitely just, true. It just looks like a, a Amish farm wife out at night. I'm not really sure what this is supposed to evoke. Yeah, it doesn't really even remind me of vampires at all. But no, it's full color, but it's full blue colors. Really <laughs> blue and black, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. So moving on, the next section is talking about the clan. So what White Wolf did is they took every single one of the 13 Masquerade clans, and they gave you ideas for how to bring it over to Vampire the Requiem. And then they did the same thing with Requiem clans being brought over into Masquerade. Yep. I like how they did. They said, if you want them to be a core clan, here's how we suggest it. And if you want them to be a bloodline of another clan, they might be a bloodline of X or Y clan. And in that case, you know, do this with the weaknesses, do this with the disciplines. That seemed to make, that was a pretty good format. Yeah, exactly. And I got to say, Matt McFarland wrote this, and he hit it out of the park with the first clan, the Asimites. That's Black Hat Matt, right? Yep. Yep. I like him. He's a good guy. Yeah. I met him in person, but I've, t- I've chatted with him on uh, forums and such, and yeah, he's, he's, he's pretty cool. Yeah, he is a cool guy, and he really did a good job with this. The Asimites, he gives five different ideas on how to bring them over from Masquerade into Requiem. So he talks about making them a covenant, making them clans, bloodlines, tons of ideas. And in fact, uh, just taking a look at this again, he gives you a bunch of different options for converting their weakness over from Masquerade to Requiem. And he gives you uh, rules for when they have the blood curse and when they don't. It's very complete and it's really good. Yeah, I appreciated that. Now, another clan that I felt uh, didn't get as good of a treatment and kind of stood out from all the others was actually the Tremere, which I know, Mark, you are a huge Tremere fan. I'm a Tremere fan when they're done right, and I'm a huge critic when they're done badly. And, and, and even though the if I were to travel back in time five years or ten years and say, hey, uh, the Tremere really would make a better... Um, uh, subsect or, or or covenant, basically. I think I would have called myself a, a blasphemer, but you know, I can remember the earliest days when I first saw in Second Edition Vampire. That's when I got introduced early on in Second Ed. Um, the Tremere. I just fell in love with it instantly. I was a bit disappointed that they were a relatively recent phenomenon and not like an ancient, like a truly ancient group. But um, in that regard, yeah, I, I think that that uh, they could have done a little bit more with the Tremere in this document, certainly. Yeah, so to go into a bit more detail, what they did is they gave you basically two options with the Tremere. They basically said you can make them a covenant, and then when you're a member, you get to use Thaumaturgy. They teach it to you. It doesn't really stand out when you compare it to the Order Dracul or the Circle of the Crone. Yeah. And they also kind of discussed making them into a clan, but it was actually a little wishy-washy, I thought, with the text. I think it is. Uh... Honestly, what it seems like what they did in certain ways was they took parts of the Tremere and made them into the uh, Order of Cool, mixed them in with the Shemitsi and their change and all that. And they took part of it and made it into the Invictus with its structure and, 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 and rigid hierarchy. And mm. and part of it they put in, lumped in with the Sabbat elements with the uh, Lankaya Sanctum. And they kind of diluted it out. I mean, you ended up with 
And a lot of the blood magic went into LS and went into Circle of the Chrome, but what you ended up with was was Abrahamic tradition magic on one side, and you had uh, animistic paganish religion magic on the other, and no secular mystical tradition. Yeah. You know, and they, they tried it with the architects of the monolith, but um, yeah, I don't know. The French vibe doesn't really jump out at me personally for that. For that thing in particular, it might work for some other things, and and it didn't buy the whole cityscape thing. You know, it just they never captured that D-esque, that Golden Dawn, Alistair Crawley, Tremere vibe. And then when they tried to cram it in in this document, try to kind of find a space for it. Well, they've already divvied it all up, and there's not a whole lot of flavor left for it. Now, I would suggest taking that, that covenant idea and instead of putting it into um, Tremere into Requiem, where they're not going to have a lot of their flavor, I would suggest taking that and putting it into Masquerade, sort of making the Tremere sort of like the Tamarillo's counterpart to the Sabbat's Black Hand. Ooh, yeah, that's a cool idea. I think it makes a great juxtaposition because in the Sabbat, you've got the hand. These are the elite fighting military force. Well, the Tamarillo... Its vibe isn't really going to be a elite fighting military force. Its vibe is going to be a group of mystics and scholars and mysterious powers. So you would not have a clan Tremere at all, but you would have a house Tremere with its pyramid. And if you join it, you're, you're Tremere first. And you're, you might have Nosferatu Tremere and Venture Tremere and Toreador Tremere and, and everybody else Tremere who focus on different things, but they're elect. Yeah, that's a great idea because it's kind of like... Uh... Similar to how the Black Hand is the, the ace in the hole for the Sabbat, the Camarilla gets that same thing. And they get sort of a mental-type ace-in-the-hole force of terror rather than the Sabbat's more physical ace-in-the-hole form. I mean, it's, I think that it would make a fantastic thing. And then, then, then also you don't have that one clan with 47 in-clan disciplines. You have a sect with access to mysterious powers that others don't get. But you're not walled out of it because you wanted to play an artist, artistic character or you felt like playing a bruja or whatever. You're not walled out of all those options. If you want that, then you can work for it and still get it later on if that's the direction your character goes. I would really like that. I would have liked uh, that kind of option to have existed in Masquerade. Well, actually, with this new translation document, if you decide to run Masquerade using the rules for Vampire the Requiem, you've got all the bloodline options then, and you can do that exact thing. That is true. So another clan I kind of wanted to bring up was the uh, the Giovanni, because I think they suffered the same thing that the Tremere did in this document. They basically say, well, you should make them a covenant that gets necromancy, or you can make them a, a clan, I guess. Yeah, once again, it's the same kind of thing, but they... Uh, honestly, I think that Giovanni were a little spoiled for me for, with some of the Black Dog stuff that focused on the incestuous necrophilia, which, what was the point of that, you know? I mean, mm. sure, it's horrifying, but it's just, it's horrifying for its own sake rather than having a real, you know, anything really good, you know, story-wise to it. I mean, obviously the guy... Uh, molestering his cousin's corpse is a bad guy. I mean, it, I don't think you really need to go to that degree. Don't, you didn't need to go there, basically. And it's not a matter of, of prudishness or offense. It's a matter of, there's nothing There's nothing deep about it. It's just a superficial, tallow, empty horribleness without really evoking anything deeper. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I understand. But, you know, I really love the idea of the uh, vampiric um, organized crime kind of thing. I mean, yeah, they tried to distance it from the whole mafia thing. But honestly, come on, vampire mafia is kind of a cool idea. Yeah, it really is. And they got some great stuff in the revised clan book for Giovanni. Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, we read some of the rituals in there, some of the rituals that they have, and ugh, <laughs> like why, like why is this necessary? This is this, this is why a lot of uh, vampire players got a bad reputation hmm. back in the day. Cool. So, Mark, I've got one other clan I want to talk about, but are there any uh, masquerade clans that you want to discuss? Uh, I always discuss the Shimizu, unless that's the ones you're going to talk about. No, I was going to talk about the Lasombra. Lasombra, I love Lasombra. I have a Lasombra. All right, sure. All right, so the Lasombra have a pretty interesting portrayal matt talks about taking them back to their roots in dark ages vampire and making them more religious based and i thought that was a pretty cool idea it makes them very unique in the vampire the requiem setting yeah i like that a lot actually you know moving in more with their um sort of orders and blaze kind of dark ages we inhabit the church and live in dark monasteries and, and master the shadows yeah i mean it also fits in very well with the uh, ls attitude of god's monsters you know mm-hmm. yeah you know, we are the, the shadows the darkness within yeah and i think it kind of works among the other archetypes in vampire the requiem bringing in these kind of spiritual vampires mm, definitely so mark you wanted to talk about the zamitsi a bit um yeah yeah i do i i don't i just want to touch on it a little bit the way they handled zamitsi in requiem i, I think there was room for for more of that than they just than what they did because they just kind of gave them the order of cool and said okay here's your here's your metamorphosis have that and it doesn't really give you that that dark lord on the mountain you know that that count dracula feel hmm, that's very true don't think anybody in requiem really gives you the count dracula feel they give you parts of it you know i mean you can see the ventru lord on his in his manner but I'm thinking he's more, I don't know, he doesn't really strike me as very, you know, Dracul. You know, it's not that whole one with the land. You know, nobody's going to, I just don't picture peasants cowering in fear, handing out crosses, and um, being terrified in the night of the Ventru. It, it just doesn't have that vibe that the Sumitsi captured. And they, they very much captured that vibe very well in Masquerade. And I think that's emblematic of a lot of the difference between the two. On, on a larger scale, because Masquerade has that, okay, uh, monstrously cumbersome and impossible backstory that's turned into a barrier to entry for new players and and represented, I mean, people were playing, spending much more time arguing about it than they were playing the game. But it had a depth and a richness to it that I think that Requiem could have benefited from if they'd been just a little bit less eager to distance themselves. That's very true, and the whole Lord on the Mountain really does fit in with the gothic nature of Vampire the Requiem. Very much so. I was actually kind of reading through this as you were speaking, the uh, Zemichi entry, and there's very little discussion of vicissitude. I thought that was a little strange, because that's such a defining discipline for that clan. Well, vicissitude has a couple of sides to it, and one side is the just alien monster, you know, this, this inhuman thing kind of aspect uh, and one other, and the other part of it is just the the gore for its own sake. And uh, I mean, I, I always I thought vicissitude was a, a fantastic discipline. You know, unlike unlike uh, chemistry, which is illusions, mm-hmm. 
Now, that kind of strikes me as more of a mage thing or a hedge magic thing or, or, or a changeling thing, for that matter. But reshaping flesh and building horrors, yeah, I could see that's that's as valid a, a vampiric trope as, say, the Tremere's Blood Thaumaturgy. It's kind of taking that and giving it that darker vibe. I, I did like the, the juxtaposition between them and the uh, the Tremere with, uh, between the two. The Sabad had their their elemental sorcerers and their, their flesh crafters and those monsters and the Camarilla had a more refined and pretty version, but it was still blood sorcery at the core. The other thing I wanted to touch on actually with the converting Vampire the Rasquerade over to Vampire the Requiem is that uh, the caitiff seemed to be completely shafted to be perfectly honest like their one benefit that they they get all the uh out of clan disciplines a little bit cheaper doesn't really carry over unfortunately no it doesn't it looks like they get one in clan discipline kind of yeah exactly yeah you you pick one affinity discipline and you get new cost times six that doesn't seem reasonable to me it seems to me that they should be able to pick three core disciplines at at the normal cost it just is at random or do like they did before and do everything at partial discount yeah i kind of agree with you but i also kind of see where they were going with this because suck. <laughs> yeah they don't want to make the caitiffs too powerful because honestly in vampire the masquerade it was pretty sweet to be a caitiff i know in the background they are shafted but as a player character just the numbers on the sheet it's way better oh it is yeah or, yeah, in that case, just make it balanced. Just make it even. They they don't get any, they don't get into covenants. They don't get, um, maybe they should be limited with their blood potency max of three or so. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or not 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 even capping. That's kind of as anti-thematic. But maybe it's slower for them. Maybe their blood is, is off and wrong, and it takes them 100 years to go up a blood potency instead of 50. Something like that, maybe. That could be a very interesting option as well. So, Mark, I wanted to also touch on some of the Vampire the Requiem clans and how they can be ported back, because I got really excited by two of these, uh, particularly the the Deva and the Mechit, because Matt gave us one freaking awesome idea for how to make them clans in Vampire the Masquerade. And I'm going to touch on those real quick. The, the Mechits are a clan who basically want to accelerate the march towards Gehenna, that being the the vampire apocalypse, basically. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool. And the Deva, uh, it's a little tough to describe without reading directly from the text. And this is going with uh, Masquerade Deva? Yeah. They're seeking humanity by being as human as possible, but not an idealized version of humanity as in the saintly creature of, of peace and calm and caring, but as the actual down and dirty, gritty, in the gutter humanity with all its foibles and throw themselves into humanity's flaws. Right. That's a perfect way to put it. And that kind of, it's an interesting foil to some of the uh, vampire fiction that's been coming out lately, which yeah. I think is very interesting, but it very much fits Vampire the Masquerade. And uh, I'd even like to bring that back into Vampire the Requiem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could use some of that. One thing that I didn't agree with is it says here that they're uh, likely to be found in the Camarilla or Sabbat uh, when they have this attitude. The thing is, though, that the Sabbat isn't really going to... 
the Sabbat wouldn't, I mean, you, know, you can change it however you want to, obviously, but as written, the Sabbat does not want you to revel in humanity. They want you to transcend it, overcome it, leave it behind. So you'd end up with, you know, they, they have their, I mean, they're not to say every Sabbat is on a path, it's just that humanity in the Sabbat is viewed as an inferior thing, not something to be emulated or attained or kept or held on to, but something to be surpassed or something that has been surpassed by becoming a vampire. A canite, is, uh, to the Sabbath, a canite is above the mortal, just above. Stronger, faster, longer-lived, better. And to, to throw oneself into it would not really be very Sabbat thing to do. Yeah, that's a great point, Mark. And even if you take the stance that basically the, the Deva and Titribu would be the exact opposite, well, then you're just saying they are revealing inhumanity and they are the opposite of human oh, and uh, alien a lot of the thing about the antitribute is not so much that they're the opposites of the uh, camarilla is that they they are a darker reflection they're like a through a dark mirror kind of version um <clears throat> rather than their opposites you don't find sabbat uh say you don't find sabbat venture throwing away uh wealth and power for the sake of uh, grubbing around in the dirt, they, they are still these noble things, but they kind of take on that noble warrior kind of attitude. The, hmm. the general on the front lines, the, uh, the, the, the noble soldier, the noble... Uh, they, they, they hearken back to that old nobility concept. The Toreador are, are not so much into traditional art and beauty, but they're into twisted kind of countercultural art and beauty, but it's still something that they would find an aesthetic. So they're really just sort of a dark twisting rather than an opposite per se. So your anti-tribute deva would just be, you know, not just somebody who throws themselves into all aspects of mortality, but they would throw themselves into the worst possible things. I mean, they'd be involved in just, they'd be involved in, in, in sex trafficking. They'd be involved in um, drug wars down in Mexico. They'd be involved in, you know, brutal and degrading and kind of like the uh, the worst of the followers of Set. Hey, so the other thing I wanted to mention was uh, the conversion of Requiem Gangrel over to Masquerade I thought was pretty interesting because there was a fairly lengthy discussion about their weakness. And this really stood out to me because I've always been a little confounded by the Gangrel weakness, you know, that they gain the animal features when they frenzy. It, it makes sense. It's interesting. It's thematic. Yeah, but it's silly. It is silly. I don't like it. I never liked it. And I never liked it for the city gangrel. It always seemed really weird for them. And then they would like, if they're city gangrel, they get rat-like features. It's a little strange. City animals. But all the same, you know, come on. Yeah, okay, it sounds cool. Okay, your vampire has these furry pointed ears or, or, or always has fangs or has slitted eyes like a cat or something. Okay, well, that's one thing. But... But yeah, but but really, what you end up with is, you know, you've got all these horrifying vampires and a muppet. <laughs> and, you know, like no, yeah, no, no, it it doesn't make, it, it it doesn't work. You know, you have all these feathers and scales and that just no. Never liked it, and I was very happy to see that 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 Gangrel and Requiem were bestial and animal-like in their behavior, in their attitudes, and their instinctive drive but not you know they're not going to suddenly you know 
you know, grow some tentacles down their, uh, you know, down their chin because they're octopus related or something and they frenzy. But come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what Matt does here is he gives us the rules for the Requiem Gangrel weakness and how you can move those over to Masquerade so you can avoid all those crazy situations. Yeah. All right, great. So, Mark, was there anything else you wanted to discuss uh, here in the Requiem Clan section? Well, let's see. Have you, you've covered uh, Mechet. I wanted to talk about Nosferatu because Nos, I love the new Nosferatu so much. Uh, honestly, old Nosferatu... I like their idea, like the concept, but I don't think they could really put off, pull off what they are supposed to be able to pull off, mainly hmm. being the information brokers. Because everybody and their dog has auspects and can read minds and can see through obfuscate. And these guys are supposed to be gathering all this information and, and hiding in secrets, but if you know half the clans either have or have access to auspects, because it was a core discipline, and that's one thing I do like about Requiem is they move that into an individual, independent discipline. So they're like one clan with it. But you just pick the information out of their heads. Or you dominate them to say, um, hey, tell me what you know. Or you sit there reading their surface thoughts and ask them questions. The answers are going to pop up. There's no way they're able to do all this stuff. Plus, they don't have aspects themselves. So how are they going to listen in? How are they going to actually project and find information that way? That's why I think that the maquette do a much better job in Requiem for information gatherers because mm-hmm. they have they have the auspects and they have the obfuscate and they have the celerity that gets them in and out. That makes a lot of sense. The new Nosferatu from Requiem have abandoned the whole information thing, for one thing, and they've abandoned the whole necessarily ugly. I like how they left the possibility. You can still have your hideously ugly twisted deformed Nosferatu if you want, but they just always have something horrifying and unsettling about them. So your Nosferatu could be physically gorgeous, but they're just kind of move just a little wrong. You know, they, they kind of, something about them is just wrong. And then they have that discipline. Now, I want this discipline in my, uh, for my, uh, Sabat character. I really do. I can't have it. Mm-hmm. But I want it. I want Nightmare because it is an incredibly awesome discipline. Because it's arguably the best thing they did, I think, in Requiem. Thematic, it's beautiful. They pull the fear parts out of presence, which if you think about it, don't quite mesh. I mean, they're fine, but they don't quite mesh. And they put it into this new ability. You know, this 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 aura of fear and it's it's fantastic i love it yeah very cool i like your point about auspects how it's like given to everyone except for the nasaratu there's a really funny story i read online about a uh, a hunter of the reckoning innocent who was using the hide ability and wandering around elysium and then she just bumps into a nasaratu because they couldn't see each other <laughs> and then right in the middle of elysium they see that there's these two people spying on them that's pretty funny although the obfuscate should have had them just subconsciously avoid the enough, but you know, whatever could happen, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So uh, do we want to talk about the Venture at all? I didn't have many comments about them. Venture were pretty much the same. I mean, they, they added a little of the crazy, which I guess makes some sense. Um, but honestly, to tell you the truth, I've never really been a big Venture fan anyway. Um, their clan book in the old world was just dull, dreadful dull. Yeah. Uh, I do like how they have animalism now. I mean, at first I was like, why? But it makes sense. You know, they have, you know, dominate 
mortal minds, dominate the animals, you know, tough, can't hurt me. You know, it, it makes a lot of sense. All right, great. So that pretty much covers all the clans. There's a little bit of discussion about the different bloodlines. Uh, well, they don't really go into too much detail about the bloodlines, but they, they talk about the mechanics a little bit. And you can check out the PDF for that. But then we get on to sects and covenants. Ah, uh, yes. And this is pretty interesting. The, uh, the movement of Vampire the Masquerade sects to become Requiem Covenants is really interesting. And for those of you that have listened to uh, the second Requiem for a Masquerade episode, you might have heard my really ridiculous ideas for bringing Camarilla into Requiem. But they've got some really cool ideas for this, uh, for the Camarilla. And one of them is that the Camarilla might become a smaller covenant, which is kind of there to keep the Masquerade, but also train new vampires. That's one of their big things, and make sure that they don't go around breaking the Masquerade. And it's a little bit different than the Invictus, who are more heavy-handed. True enough. I do like how they, they gave an option for them being this villainous group. You know, this is oppressive tyranny. Mm-hmm. I thought that was that was clever. Um, one of the things I've seen them do is sort of vilify their old heroes. And it's more irrelevant for Werewolf because they basically took the uh, the Garu Nation of the old game and made them the pure in the new game, the horrible villains. So mm, yeah, but that's 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 a, that's a side from the Masquerade thing. But. So that's the Camarilla and the Sabbat. Now, I really, really liked what they did with this, because they, instead of directly porting them in, which doesn't exactly fit, they broke them up into a few different options, and they, they looked at the different themes of the Sabbat, and then took those all in different directions for the Covenants. So one of them is that they are very warlike, mm-hmm. and they're kind of trying to tell people that there's these antediluvians, which are going to rise up and kill everyone, which is an idea that's not exactly present in Requiem, but the option's always there. There's not that eschatology, uh, eschatology. there's not that, that millenarian doctrine. Like, Masquerade always had the apocalypse looming over your head, getting all of it right there. The world is about to end. Whereas without that pressure, the Sabbat makes a lot less sense uh, in the, uh, the new world. What they, they kind of did was they took the, the violent part of the Sabbat and threw them into one group, the Bell's group, and they took the religious part of the Sabbat and threw them into the Lankaya Sanctum. Mm-hmm. But I think that that kind of lacks some of the, just the, the cool element that you get by having both together. And I like, I like how they have the, uh, you know, the suggestions they have for bringing that back in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also a little bit of discussion about the different uh, Rite and all that in the Sabbat, which is pretty good, especially the uh, Vinculum. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Mark, you might have seen on the, the show notes that I gave you that I said, uh, none of the covenants really interest me, honestly. I have to amend that because I went back and read through the Circle of the Crone, and I think there's a couple of really cool ideas that Matt was able to work in here. And specifically, I'm talking about the uh, the sort of trinity of the crone, the maiden, and the mother, and how that works into the Book of Nod for Vampire the Masquerade. I think there's some really cool ideas there which you could... Uh, you can almost bring it into the whole Lilith theme and the revelations of the Dark Mother and all that. Well, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, the circle... Yeah, okay, I just have to have a little bit of a bias against this kind of thing anyway, but it does have some cool ideas. 
Do you have any other comments about the different covenants and how they could be brought into Vampire the Masquerade? Not really. I think we've, we've covered it pretty well. That's true. We were talking about that a bit earlier on in the show. Yeah, I covered that a little bit about uh, the Tremere thing and, and all that. I think that one thing that's that was that lent a lot of depth to Masquerade was the um, and the antithetical nature of the sects. She always had that that villainous group out there, that other that wanted to kill you. <laughs> you know, I think that mm-hmm. taking that away and making it all honestly friendlier um, kind of pulled out a lot of the uh, kind of pulled out a lot of the, uh, the, the feeling the masquerade had. So you don't have quite so much. This this you don't have the, the one big enemy. You know, you've got kind of a two-dimensional Bilal's brood and um, a two-dimensional or even a one-dimensional seven. The, honestly, a, a two-dimensional bad guys just because they're bad is not as I disagree with the way they they said it. I forget who was originally talking about it, but they said they wanted villains who were villains. You know, eh, come on, you know. Vampire is not about heroes. It is about monsters. And I like how they focused on that. But, yeah, I, I think that there's something to be said for having a little bit more of a, a viable and deep antagonist, you know, one that can be played. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a very interesting point, especially because when you look at Vampire the Masquerade as compared to Vampire the Requiem, uh, especially when you look at, like, the Masquerade's Camarilla, there's this little feeling about how uh, you're kind of in it together, unfortunately, because there's these Sabbat that's bearing down on you, and there's all these other things that you have to watch out for, as opposed to Vampire the Requiem, where there's even more of a feeling that you can't trust anyone. There's definitely that in Vampire the Masquerade, but pretty much everyone is against you in Requiem. Yeah. All right, great. So I think that really covers the Sex and Covenants. And we can sort of move on to talking about the the disciplines, because what Matt did was he went through and converted every, well, not every, but most of the disciplines from Vampire the Masquerade over to Requiem, and then vice versa. There's a couple that are left out. Um, there was no conversion for, let's say, celerity over into Vampire the Requiem, which is uh, <laughs> definitely a good thing. Yeah, well, you don't need all those extra actions. There are ways to get them, but really. Um, honestly, that was one of the most broken things about the old world was was celerity and how long it took for the one guy with four dots in celerity to get through his combat turn. It just was ridiculous. And I really love the changes to celerity because, I mean, honestly, even, even before, like second ed, you could split all your dice pools. So that guy with four dots in celerity had his main, his main dice pool, which he might split three ways, and then four additional follow-up actions, each of which could be split up three ways. So that's 15 actions this guy was taking at three or four dice a pop. That, that was completely broken. And then they reduced it to you could only split your main dice pool, but your celerity pools had all of your old as one at a time, which helped a lot. But even so, one guy taking five actions in a turn, was it was busted. It didn't work. It was obnoxious. Yeah, you're <laughs> definitely said, right. You were done, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I haven't really tested out any of these mechanics, to be perfectly honest. Um, <laughs> but, but one of the cool things is that it's actually 
pretty much a direct translation from one game to another. So they didn't rebalance them or anything, which mm -hmm. is good and bad. It means that you don't have to worry about them changing something around when you don't want it to be changed. Um, mm -hmm. And if something doesn't work for your game, you can really just go back, change a difficulty or something, and then it should work out fine. Yeah, and really, the only thing that was really going to be particularly broken by not rebalancing it would have been those three physical disciplines for the most part. Mm -hmm. I mean, the rituals tend to be pretty much the same for lithometry, necromancy, and such. I noticed that uh, Obtenebration, Black Met, still gives you, uh, Black Metamorphosis, I'll be more specific for listeners and such, still does an additional attack. Hmm, okay. That's um, pretty strange. And I don't recall it, I mean, it always did that before, because you, you, you have four extra arms. Yep. So you get one extra attack. Because if it gave you four, that would be insane. And apparently it upgrades your damage to lethal. I don't remember if Master Ray, Black Metamorphosis, upgraded your damage to lethal or not. I know that the live-action version does not, but uh, it's that's even more broken. So, hmm. Same cost, yeah. Oh, you have to roll for it. That is one thing that I keep having to get used to, rolling to activate powers like that one, you know? Yeah. Seems to me that if you have a transformative power that changes you, then you shouldn't have to roll for it. You know, I turn into something. I shouldn't have to roll for that. But if I'm going to turn somebody else into something or, you know, blast somebody with fire or turn twitch, twist somebody's minds or perceptions, then sure, that should be a roll. But that's my opinion. I don't know why they, they did that. But. Well, I can see it going either way, really. I mean, when you're trying to activate some mysterious power or something, maybe it is some kind of stress on you and it might fail. Uh, do you have any comments on Thaumaturgy, since you are the resident Tremere guru? Well, I've lost a lot of my touch with Tremere, unfortunately, but I don't know. It looks pretty much like a straight-up port. Yeah. Are there any that really are there any paths or rituals that you're really excited about bringing into a Requiem game? Well, I mean, they didn't include uh, spirit manipulation in here, I don't think. I remember seeing that. That one was always a lot of fun. Something like Path of Curses, is that in here? I don't think it was. Blood is here. Flames is in here. Conjuring is in here. It looks like they took the ones from the core book and didn't really do any of the others, which is fine. Yeah, we should probably bring up that the Thaumaturgy Paths and Rituals and the Necromancy Paths and Rituals are just taken from the core book. They didn't include anything from the uh, more obscure source books, which means that they get, you got the basic stuff in here. But you don't have some of the like really crazy like biothaumaturgy and that kind of stuff. Right. I'm sure that's by design, but they still had some pretty cool things that, that might have been uh, have been doable. Yeah, I loved seeing vicissitude in here. Oh yeah, definitely. That's something I think. I mean, I just remember early on when Requiem came out after having played for a while, just thinking how horrifying a an antagonist that a, a Smeetsy assassin would be, you know, one who could who could change his face to look like anybody who could slip in and out of anywhere you could you could get to in blood form, who could do all the things that they could do, and it would just be horrifying. Oh, that's great. You know, I'd be really struggling to figure out a uh, something for a Vampire the Requiem one-shot, and using a Smeetsy would be such a cool idea, maybe in, like, Elysium, someone gets murdered. Or maybe multiple people. Hmm, that could be very cool. Absolutely. All right, thanks for the great idea. Yeah, because I mean, that, the things that you know you could do with the Shemitsi, I mean, they could you know, turn into blood and 
one thing we used to do for fun as a slot player was one of the things that we would do is we would, uh, our characters would sneak in to somebody's house and scare the hell out of them and then leave without ever leaving any signs that it was real. So one thing that my character would do was bleed down the walls, wake somebody up by dripping on them and bleed down the walls and then obfuscate and disappear. And they would freak the hell out. Good stuff. But yeah, if you're, if you've got a game where, you know, uh, where people are, are found ruptured in their beds from the streets, he's saying blood form flowing into their lungs and expanding until they rupture. That's horrifying. You know, you're, what mm-hmm. the hell does that, you know, or somebody wakes up in their bed and their bodies have been switched like, um, like a husband and wife. And somebody has come in and flesh crafted the husband to look just like the wife and the wife to look just like the husband and switched their places in the bed. So they think that they're uh, been transposed bodies, that kind of thing. <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I've done that. It's fun. Wow, wow. Well, not me personally. I'm not delusional enough to believe this stuff is real. But, uh, you know, here I am telling gamer stories. I should probably knock that off. Right. So there's also some stuff that's uh, converted over to Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, specifically, we got Theme and Sorcery and Kruak, and also the Nightmare Discipline. And that's yeah. some pretty cool new stuff to bring in. Uh, you could even make Theme and Sorcery and Kruak into perhaps Thaumaturgy Paths, or, or actually I should say Rituals, because it's not Paths. Yes. So it just gives you a couple more options, which is pretty nice. Um, other than that, there's uh, quite a bit talking about differences between uh, like backgrounds and other like traits and systems between Requiem and Masquerade. Uh, the only thing I really want to touch on this is that I'm a little disappointed with the treatment of generation and blood potency. I know, me too. It's nothing you couldn't just figure out on your own, you know? Exactly, because all they did... The other thing is that they spend so many words explaining this when they could just give you the equation, which is blood potency equals 14 minus generation. That's all they had to do. Yep. And it's like, if you if you take all the all those words and then make it something that we couldn't figure out on ourselves, maybe some cool new approach to this, maybe combine the two, that would be great. That would be interesting, you know? Give... Give, uh, let's say, if you're using both systems at once, um, maybe certain things are generation-based and certain things are blood potency-based. Mm-hmm. Um, like maybe your uh, blood pool spend per turn is generation-based, but your maximum trait pool is potency. Or, I don't know, I guess it depends on which one you're playing. Well, I've always been. I've always thought that would be very interesting to bring something like age or blood potency into Vampire the Masquerade to kind of handle things like, uh, like generation would handle generation, ca- uh, sorry, excuse me, discipline cap. So yeah. your generation of, of seven gives you a discipline cap of six. I believe that's correct. But the, maybe like your maximum blood pool would depend on your, your age or, or blood potency. Mm-hmm. That way you don't get someone who's just recently embraced and he's fifth generation, he's super powerful, because that doesn't really make that much sense. Yeah, and neither does it make sense that a 13th generation vampire who's a thousand years old would be not a horrifying monstrosity. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense that, you know, your, your, your 10th generation schmo embraced yesterday is going to be able to dominate that guy. It just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. I, I do have another mechanic I want to mention, uh, just because I know this is going to... I'm going to get a reaction out of you. Uh, Uh-oh. Predator's Taint in Vampire the Masquerade. 
<laughs> no! The worst idea in Rock League. Uh, okay. All right. I like the flavor of the Highlander you kind of look that you get. I kind of like that. I kind of dig that. I'm comfortable with that. But I'm not a fan, and I never have been, and I don't think I ever will be, of Predator's Taint as written. Because as written, you can't travel. Because somebody is going to Kirk out and, mm-hmm. and attack you. Somebody's going to go nuts. You can't bring your new vampire into Elysium because somebody's going to freak out. I know they say, well, you expect to see vampires there so it doesn't, uh, doesn't trigger. Well, okay, that's an excuse. You know, the book says, the rule, uh, blood potency as written says, you see a vampire you're not familiar with, you have this reaction, you're probably, somebody's going to frenzy. If you're a new vampire, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. It makes no sense, and all it does is it unreasonably limits travel. It unreasonably limits characters moving from place to place. And I'm pretty sure they did it on purpose to do just that, and I think it hurts the game. I think that's a bad idea. I think it hurts the game. Yeah, I kind of agree, and I'm, I've always been very surprised that they kept the rule in there, because um, in Mary's Child, the original like intro chronicle for Vampire the Requiem, the first couple scenarios are just like, you meet a vampire, oh, everyone has to roll Predator's Taint, see what happens. <sighs> and it happens so much, and this actually, this is also written by Matt McFarland, and I kind of wish he'd noticed, like, man, we have to fight or flee all the time, like every new scene, that's a little ridiculous. It is. A, it's ridiculous. B, it takes away your character's initial reaction. Mm-hmm. Your initial reaction to anybody you meet is not going to be the first impression they give you. It's going to be, oh, no, I must run away, or I must assault this person. Those are the only initial reactions you're ever going to get. You know, they say you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Well, if your first impressions are either run the hell away or <laughs> assault, then it just doesn't work. And it's obnoxious and a dumb idea. And honestly, 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 I think White Wolf will be very well served by finally being able to admit they were wrong about something. They just can't. They just can't do it. Predator's Taint was a bad idea. All right. So are there any other are there any other mechanics you want to talk about? We could go over, well, real quick, uh, nature and demeanor versus versus virtue and vice. I, I like how you could just run with both. They're, they're not, they don't conflict. Mm-hmm. You could just say, okay, I have a nature, a demeanor, a virtue, and a vice, and they work very well. Uh, one system that I found very useful uh, is to determine which is, uh, which is more dominant. I mean, obviously your nature and demeanor, it pretty much spells it out for you, but if you're, um, I mean, you might be a wrathful and judgmental, you know, wrathful and say, I don't know, give me a virtue and a vice. Um, Charity and wrath. You might be mm-hmm. a charitable person with an with a angry streak, or you might be an angry person with a charitable streak. You know, which is it? Those are different. Uh, that's, that's a very interesting way to look at it. Well, if you pick which one, virtue or vice, is more dominant, then you, you get a little extra flavor out of the character. Uh, I do like how they moved all the backgrounds and merits and flaws and put them under merits. Got rid of flaws for the most part. There's that little rule I've never seen anybody actually use uh, for flaws, but but yeah, I like how they did that. Yeah, it's a good idea. So, humanity, paths, yeah, paths got a little out of hand, uh, I'll admit. Willpower, I mean, they derive differently, but other than that, they're pretty much the same kind of thing. 
Uh, I do like how in Requiem they have um, you spend a permanent will to embrace somebody, which solves the whole shovelhead problem. Yeah, that's a good point. That's, I think, something to be very valuable to bring over to Masquerade. I mean, yeah, it kind of blunt some of the Sabat's uh, dumber tactics, but, you know, the mass embrace thing, I mean, the mass embrace thing could still work. You get, uh, you know, six people together, and each of them blows a permanent will to embrace somebody. You've got your shovelhead party. Whoever comes back is, you know, is, is worthwhile. You're just probably not going to waste them quite so frivolously. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I kind of, isn't there something that you have to spend willpower to make a ghoul as well? You spend the temporary willpower to make a ghoul. Hmm. I like too. Yeah, I would actually, I would keep the embrace thing, but the ghoul, I might say that you don't have to burn any willpower for that one. I don't have a problem with it myself. I mean, you are getting something out of it. You know, they just kind of don't want you to make, you know, 57 ghouls. I think the idea was that you didn't get anything completely for free. That's a very good point. So that about covers it with all the, uh, different mechanics and then the the document finishes off by going into different character conversions uh they they take the the example characters from both masquerade and requiem and then convert them to the other game which is pretty cool i wanted to, to make a brief point about blood sympathy i think it'd be valuable to bring into masquerade blood sympathy so is that like the uh the sire yeah yeah like if you're you're you get a sense of your sire your grandsire your childer, your grandchilder I always expand it to include broodmates too. So you, you know, if your sire embraces two people together, or you know somebody else, and then you, you can get kind of a sense from them too, maybe a little bit less. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a really nice mechanic, and I think that would be valuable for um, for masquerade. Gotcha. All right, that's a good point. Especially with the Camarilla and its, you know, reliance on on that whole uh, family tree, you know, bloodline kind of thing. Sure. Anyway, so I didn't mean to derail you there. No, it's no problem. Uh, do you have any comments on the the character conversions? See, I didn't go over these in a whole lot of detail. There's not. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. It was just so, it was just taking you through the steps just to explain it real quick. Right. And I think that's a good thing. See, one thing that I think that uh, that vampire in general could could uh, benefit from would be some of the things that you see in things like the Dresden Files RPG or in Fading Suns where you build your character by defining steps in their lives. Mm-hmm. So you start off with an early, early life, basic stats, you know, what got you here? You know, middle, middle, you know, what formed you? What, what, what drives you? What, what's kind of your formative experience? What made you what you are? And then finishing touches, you know, what, what brings you to this point? What brings you to game one? I think that's that's a valuable approach to take. I think that both games benefit greatly from doing that. Yeah, that's a great point. Because sometimes when people are making all their their choices for skills and knowledges, you get some pretty funky things in there. Vampire, you start thinking stats that work well together, and then you end up with a sheet and not a character. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there is one guy in the the White Wolf forums, and I don't want to be really critical about his character. It was a pretty cool gargoyle, actually, uh, but. He's talking about how it was like born from an egg and all that, but the character sheet had two points in Streetwise. Why? He's a rock monster. He's <laughs> a rock monster. How is he Streetwise? That makes a lot That's a good point. Uh, I'm just as glad they didn't convert gargoyles over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some of the stranger things that should not ever have been. Right, right. I mean, they had the idea for Ferox, and he's really cool, but the rest of them, a little out of place. Yeah. 
Not really. I think that, honestly, maybe it would have been better if they had been ghouls. Maybe. That's a good point. I just thought of that. Maybe maybe they had been ghouls. Or maybe if they had just stayed in the Dark Ages. Or just, well, anything that happened in the Dark Ages is going to get ported to the modern game. It's just going to happen. You know, you, yeah. you, you can't. Okay, you have these immortal characters that live forever. Let's look at how they were 800 years ago. Well, why is Odd Tenebration different now? Why can't I have that version of Vod 4, say? Or, hey, they had gargoyles. Whatever happened to those? Or, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, it's supposed to be the same world, so mm-hmm. it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, yeah, you could have them, have them extinct in the backstory, but somebody's going to go, oh, well, mine was in Torpor, or, you know, some bizarre thing happened and I get one. And it's just obnoxious having to, to say no, 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 no. You know, uh, one thing that I do like is that they seem to have gotten past their everything under the sun is rare. I mean, mm-hmm. White Wolf Masquerade, they published, you know, I don't know how many books. I never had all those books, but they had to have published a couple hundred books. And the majority of the things in those books are vanishingly rare. Like, why do you publish 200 books full of vanishingly rare things? Hmm, yeah. It, Here's it, an awesome thing. Here's a great excuse for your for your storyteller to say, hells no. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Never understood that attitude. I gotcha. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that, uh, well, now they take the approach that everything under the sun is optional. So yeah. you get just tons of choices. Yeah, you know, if you want there to be you know, umpteen bazillion massilarious vampires out there, that's an option. If you ever want to do that. <laughs> That's fine. So, I don't like that they've abandoned that because they make a lot of sense. And then they came up with things like Nagar Raja and they came up with True Bruja. And, uh, come on, time powers? Really? Vampires? Time? No. No. Whoa. Were you just insulting Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand? Yes, I was. The worst book they put out aside from just. <laughs> and I'll continue to do so. Jeez, come on. I, I have an entire write up. I have an essay about why Dirty Seek is a Black Hand is awesome. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. That's right. I I kind of say at the end, yeah, everything in this book is sweet, except for the Soul Eaters. Oh, I hate those. those that, are that was kind of a bad idea. I think it's the dumbest idea. Okay, I, I take it back. True Burha, kind of cool, except for the time powers. Mm-hmm. I'll give you that. Soul Eaters was just dumb. <laughs> Uh, yep, the, uh, the ghost babies and the, the, the flesh balls of mouths and stuff. Ugh. Why? And all the pen and ink art. I mean, I've seen good pen and ink art. That's good stuff. But all the weird twisted little why. You know, is that somebody's friend or best buddy or something? Yeah, it's a pretty weird book. Anyway, we're getting a little off track here. Do we have any finishing comments on the, uh, translation guide? Uh, overall, a great effort. I think it had a lot of good points to it, and uh, was, I was really looking forward to it. And they had all these delays bringing it out because they wanted it to be really, you know, top notch. And I said, I'll take two or three notches down. Just get me the information. Hmm. <laughs> I said, I'll pay you double. <laughs> and they were like, No, no, no. Well, I gotta say, this is the most exciting White Wolf release in probably. Uh, when did Gehenna come out? Oh yeah. Alright, I don't want to be that critical, but it is yeah. it is such a great book and I'm very happy with the purchase. And it's cheap too. Ninety nine cents? I'll yeah, take I was it. Surprised. Pleasantly surprised. But yeah, this this has been a fantastic doctrine. I mean I'm glad that I mean, it has a few things that I wish to focus more on, but you know, you can't have everything and 
And frankly, I'm not really sure what more they really could have done, even in the parts that I found a little less awesome than the rest of it. This is extremely uh, encouraging. I'm glad they're abandoning the whole don't talk about masquerade, pretend it never happened uh, attitude, which I can understand when you have a print schedule, you want people buying the new stuff and not promoting the old stuff. But now that they're releasing everything in PDF, old and new, why not play with it? Yeah, and it's crazy like how much good PR they've gotten from this. Because if you look at like RPG.net maybe six months ago, it's a lot of like, oh no, White Wolf, White Wolf's dying, blah, blah, blah. And now it's all, White Wolf, they're back, it's great. And it's it's just very nice to see that. So, uh, great yeah, book. I come across like this huge critic, but I really, only reason I, I gripe is that I really love this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I want it to be awesome as possible. Yep, I, I agree completely, and I cannot wait for the uh, werewolf translation document. Yes, yes indeed. That's a good way to start a rumor, right? Werewolf translation document, mage translation document, oh, there's one to start playing more. Oh my god, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I still haven't forgiven them for Atlantis. I've learned to accept it, but they told me some things about it early on that did not turn out, they didn't turn out to follow up on, so... Hmm. Like they said, okay, Atlantis is a thing in the background. It's not really something we're going to focus on. So don't worry about it too much. It's just kind of backstory. And yet every third word is Atlantis in every book. So, Mark, that's it with the translation guide. Do you want to uh, talk about some of the games you're in? You are mentioning your Sabat game. <laughs> yes, I'm in a live-action Sabat game in one world by which is an organization of uh, vampire larks still playing Masquerade. They decided not to kill all of their ridiculously ancient PCs to, mm-hmm. to take the system. Uh, a lot of people from uh, the Camarilla fan club came over uh, at that point and have proceeded to join in and have a lot of fun, add a whole new layer of rules, but that's okay because some things needed new rules. Actually, I'm very encouraged by some of the things going on there. Uh, no, the game is a lot of fun. You know, I'm playing uh, La Sombra, having a grand time. Uh, let's see. I've also got a Requiem for Rome game. I run a lot of games. I'm running two D&D games in the same, set in the same world, all concurrent. Uh, Requiem for Rome. I just started a Changeling, the Lost game. Oh, outstanding. Yeah, I'm full of insane. I don't know what my deal is. That's very cool. Are there any uh, games you're excited to run but you aren't able to right now? I really want to run Crescent Files RPG. I want to get into... Um, the nominee again, that's a game I really would love to see brought up to date. Hmm. That's the one with the uh, uh demons and Yeah, the different like gods, like you're the god of the bookshelf or something, right? No, not really. Oh, okay. <laughs> you're thinking of Novelis. Oh that that's what I'm thinking of, you're right. I actually used to have a copy of that, the old awesome hardbound, but somebody bought it for me for disturbing amounts of money, so I'm just as happy mm-hmm. <laughs> that book was book was getting kind of rare and difficult to find um but no i dresden files rpg uh looking into starting a game of that another game of that soon i was in that with uh in one game of that with uh, one of the play testers uh for it um out here because i live not too terribly far away from uh where uh evil hat studios is oh, so right cool. up in Maryland, I think Bethesda, something like that, and I'm like 30 miles from there. 
So I managed to cross paths with one of the playtesters, and he was running another games like a few weeks before it came out, and got involved in that. I made it through the Aorus Essence uh, ordeal of what three years was it for that game? Uh, honestly, it's kind of daunting. I mean, it's a beautiful. It's the most beautiful look I've ever gotten for a game. It's ridiculous. Oh, the Dark Heresy books. Um, oh, those are very high quality. Amazing. Oh, have you seen the... I saw the uh, special edition Death Watch. My friendly local gaming store has a copy of this in a case. And it is $2, and it is the most amazing book ever. It's just gorgeous. It's huge, black, silver-lined tome with a big inquisitorial seal on it, and it's in this buckled into this box with lost skulls and the little prayer scrolls and magnets and oh it's just a gorgeous thing and i just my wife would kill me if i bought it <laughs> yeah fantasy flight like it's the same thing with white wolf maybe like two years ago people were saying oh fantasy flight they don't do rpgs anymore they're all board games but now everyone's so excited about them but uh, oh there's lots of stuff uh not too much pathfinder I kind of like to convert one one or both of my D&D games over to the Pathfinder. Uh, so 3-5. Okay. I like to transfer them over there, but it's probably not going to happen. Since I'm the only one with those books, and most of my players have the D&D 3-5. So that's unlikely to happen. I want to play Cartoon Action Hour. Cartoon Action Hour? I've not heard of that one. Oh, this one's amazing. I love it. It's this, it's this cheesy game, but it's so cool. It's it's You play... An RPG based on 80s cartoons like He-Man and She-Ra and the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon and and like Turbo Team and crap like that. Oh like my God! Transformers, all these. I mean, I, I was like a Transformer devotee, like you wouldn't believe. But any of those awful, awful cartoons, and you know those, those things. If you watch them now, it's nostalgia side because it's just so painful. Uh, but you know, you're the like you're the the heroes of the of the the, the hero team. You know, where where you might play uh, characters kind of like I guess like He-Man and his friends. You wouldn't be He-Man specifically. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have like your mighty warriors and their friends, and they're fighting against the evil villains. And the evil villains always have some zany thing, like they're gonna control the weather, or they're gonna have, gain power over these super big earthworms, or whatever. The right. thing. It's a ridiculous thing. And nobody ever really dies or gets seriously hurt. <laughs> but it's it's all 80s cartoon rule. And it it, it it does it very well. It really works very well. Which I think, I want to say Eddie Webb was involved with it, but I'm not sure if it was him. Some of the White Wolf guys were. Oh, very cool. We're involved with that. All right, that sounds great. Well, Mark, I know it's really late over there. And it's pretty late because I'm in the same time zone. So I'm not going to keep you any longer. Okay. But this has been great, lots of fun. All right, Mark, thank you very much, and hopefully we can have you on the show again. Absolutely. A lot of fun. You get me to complain about something else. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll be back with a interview with Monica Valentinelli right after this commercial break. If you're looking for an actual play podcast that has beautiful women... And a door opens up, and there is probably uh, one of the most unattractive women you've ever seen in your life. Got to be pushing 400 pounds. Uh, cigarette dangling from her mouth. What the hell do you want? 
smooth talking adventurers. We have already one art for the paper. You might get your picture in the paper, and that's probably what. More and more, right? Oh, yeah. It has to be a two page right. Or quick thinking adventurers. We only knew Billy's last name. We have William Hobson, but we don't have Billy. Well, this isn't the podcast for you, but if you're looking to join some old friends that have gathered together to have a good time, then come join the Knights of the Night actual play podcast. You can find us at iTunes or on the web at kotnpodcast.com because we're in it for the fun. All right. I'm here with Monica Valentinelli. Monica, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Not bad at all. So Monica is one of White Wolf's newest freelancers. She recently wrote Scenes of the Embrace, which just came out on PDF and was developed by Eddie Webb. So just to jump right into it, Monica, could you give us some of your gaming credentials? Sure. I've been a freelancer in the industry for the past five or six years, but I've been a longtime gamer and fan of a lot of genre-based products like you know Lovecraft and whatnot. Uh, the first game that I worked on was a game called Nuomenon, which was put out by Abstract Nova Entertainment. It's a game where you play giant bugs in this huge, you know, mansion. And the setting is based off of, or inspired by Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis. And the system is dominoes, believe it or not. So hmm. it's a very unusual game, very surreal, um, a lot of fun to write for. And from there, I've done a lot of stuff within the horror genre. Um, I've done work for Eden Studios on All Flesh Must Be Eaten. I did another horror game called Exquisite Replicas and quite a few other things, including some fiction. Most recently, one of the gaming stories that I released was for 12 to Midnight, and it was a short story called Pie for Buried Tales of Pine Box, Texas. Very cool. Uh, you also mentioned that you worked on Ninja Burger. Could you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about that? Because that's a uh, very unique game. Yeah, that's so much fun. That one I didn't do any design work on. I did some editing, and uh, the guys over at Ethereal Forge are just amazing. And I just had so much fun reading that game. Um, that was the second edition of Ninja Burger. If you haven't played it, it's such a blast. <laughs> I mean, you know, running around with little pizza boxes and whatnot. So, yeah, yeah it's a lot of fun. Yeah, my roommate is a huge fan of that game. I don't think he's ever played it, but he loved to read it. Well, and that's that's kind of the fun part about some of these games is that even if I don't get the time to play every game, I at least get the time to, you know, read them and, and you know, just kind of get other ideas for other things. I mean, it's just a lot of fun. So looking back at the World of Darkness, uh, Scenes of the Embrace was recently put out on PDF. And I was reading through this. It's a very interesting anthology. It has 14 different scenes or scenarios, two for each vice in the new world of darkness. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading it, I was kind of wondering if you had LARP in mind when you were designing some of these scenes, because while I might not use them uh, in my tabletop game, some of them seemed very, very interesting, especially the rival one, which is the first scene in the actual book. Uh, I thought that would be great for LARP. I do have experience with LARP, and I'm influenced by some of the people in my gaming group who have a lot more experience with LARP. One of the things that 
I try to bring into my game design is I think about usability. And when I was coming up with all these different ideas for Scenes of the Embrace, I wanted to have a lot of them set in, you know, kind of like a modern horror setting outside of the world of darkness, where if you did want to draw that idea into a LARP and just use that generic theme or that generic idea, you could do that. Rival is perfect for that because I can just imagine somebody breaking out into the middle of a fight, you know, in the middle of a LARP scene because they're vying for the same mortal to try to embrace them. So yeah, it there was some influence on that for sure because I tried to stick to more like a modern city environment because a lot of Vampire the Requiem games are played in cities as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, not everyone, but I've been playing in a Chronicle for over a year, and ours was set in Chicago, and uh, that that did have a little bit of influence on it as well. Yeah, great. And I definitely noticed when I was looking at this product that there is a lot of elements that you could take from this Vampire the Requiem product and bring it over to Vampire the Masquerade. And one thing I was kind of wondering about as I was reading this is, while a lot of the ideas would fit very well into a Camarilla game, do you think any of these scenes might stand out for either a, a Sabat or Independent Chronicle? Well, for a Sabat, the partner embrace, that's hmm. um, where you're basically trying to be convinced to become somebody's partner. Th that's kind of what I think the Sabat is all about. Um, of course, this was written for Requiem, and within that, even though these are generic, there's a lot of you know consequences that come into play based on what covenant you belong to and what your motivations are and what your vice is and all of that but um i, I could really see the partner being more of a sabbat based thing just because that's kind of how i view the sabbat to be is you know kind of like oh maybe i can use this to my advantage and then you know like stick them in the back or something you know just to indulge in that more so and then but then take advantage of it because in this it's the way that it's written you know it's it's kind of like could go either way um but the way i imagine it to be worst case scenario is that you end up totally giving into you know every particular indulgence that you could possibly think of and just take that and really ramp that up with whoever you happen to embrace and I could see that as being a Sabbat thing for sure. Mm, definitely. I could also see that one being applied to perhaps the Setites. That might work oh, well. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And another thing I want to comment on as I was reading through this is there is a little sidebar that mentions a loss of humanity when you're uh, committing <laughs> the embrace. And right. wow, I can't believe I haven't thought of that before. It's so blindly obvious, but I'm really glad that was right there. And it gives some little mechanics to uh, back it up. Well, I'm glad that you liked it. I was I was actually freaking out a little bit about it when I when I suggested it because, you know, it is an optional rule, but I really thought about how, you know, the embrace affects not only you, but it also you as a vampire, but also the effect that it has on the mortal. And and you're physically killing somebody and changing them into this undead creature. And to me, you know, that could totally be tied into humanity. So um, that's that's part of where that inspiration came from is just thinking about all of the different ways that your relationship with your sire, what that mortal goes through. So it's pretty cool that you like that. Oh, no problem. There really was a very good detailed explanation and discussion of the embrace in the beginning of the PDF. So that I thought that it was a good strength, uh, especially, especially with some of the rules that were backing things up and uh, explanations. Because when you look at some of the old War of the Darkness products, maybe uh, Dark Ages Vampire, they have this very in-depth description of what happens, but it doesn't go too much into the psychology, I don't think. 
this one was interesting because um, when Eddie Eddie Webb is the developer on this product, and he had you know some ideas about how to apply the vice, and you know really wanted to amplify that. One of the things that happened through the development of the product is that that psychology came more and more into play the more complex I realized the embrace was because it's not just about you as a vampire, but it's also about your particular child or I called it the candidate because mm -hmm. the embrace yep. may not always be successful. That's such a complex relationship because then you also have that conflict with whatever happens within kindred society as a whole. So a lot of that psychology that came into play was primarily inspired by what Eddie put forth, but then taking that situation then just try to spin it what ended up happening was we realized that this product could be used as a template so if somebody wanted to take the world of darkness core book and use one of these scenes then they could play through the process from being a mortal to becoming a vampire and once you apply that template on there then they could become a vampire based on whatever happens during the embrace and that was one of the one of the really cool things that came out of this yeah, that's a great segue to my next comment, Monica. Recently on Darker Days, Adrian Stagg and I discussed The Last Supper for Vampire the Masquerade, which has 12 different scenarios, one for each clan present at this event, to change a mortal into a vampire, basically embrace scenes like this. Could you kind of describe what you guys were going for with Scenes of the Embrace and how it might compare to The Last Supper? Sure. Um, to be clear, I haven't read The Last Supper even though I really want to now. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so when Eddie first approached me with the product, this design was inspired by Will Hindmarch's Scenes of Frenzy. So the idea was to have a very, what I would call, I mean, I hate to use the word toolkit, but that's really what it is. So have scenes that are not setting specific or very detail oriented so that if you wanted to you could take this scene and it would be more applicable to more storytellers rather than having it be specific to a particular group so initially my first draft ended up being the almost the opposite of that it was very specific partially because i was thinking about you know oh this embrace scene would be cool i play vampire i would like to do that you know that that sort of thing Mm -hmm. But that's not what they were going for. So I ended up revising it. And one of the things that we did is that there's character goals and whatnot. But in the beginning, there's the way that the scene is set up in the overview. It's so generic that we we hoped, you know, by doing that, that we'd reach more players than just my particular chronicle or, you know, somebody else's particular chronicle. That way that more people could play it and... Um, not be so focused on you know like a particular plot and that was the goal for the design which was as i understand it to be different from the last supper because uh, one of the things that often comes up in game is as a storyteller if you're looking at this particular player in front of you hey i want to give them the opportunity to make a decision to embrace well here i have this product with 14 scenes in it i have a scenario that's somewhat similar okay i could use this and then just kind of run with it and that was the idea let's step away from scenes of the embrace and talk about the devil's night sas that you wrote sure so for people that haven't checked this out it's a very cool sas especially because it's free and it was a collaboration <laughs> between white wolf and flamesrising.com and basically the scene is there's a young girl who has found that she has uh, pyrokinesis well she's known that for a while but 
she's unable to control it now and she's basically wreaking havoc on the city and it's also set to i believe halloween night is that correct right yep so this provides a pretty interesting scenario for your characters to uh to go in there and deal with some trouble my first question is uh how did the writing and design process of devil's night differ from scenes of the embrace oh it was it was night and day different um Devil's Night was one draft with maybe one edit, and everything that I had proposed to Eddie about what I wanted to do, we kind of talked about beforehand. So it was a little bit more, um, I had a little bit more freedom with it. Scenes of the Embrace, I still had, you know, freedom, but but they had specific goals to fit the Vampire the Requiem line. So it was a little bit more stringent in the fact that they had an idea, he had a very clear vision of what he wanted the goal and the product to accomplish. And in this, this was, you know, something fun for people to do. And as long as it fit the atmosphere of World of Darkness and the mechanics and everything else like that were all in line, then, you know, I could pretty much do whatever I wanted. I mean, I told them up front that, hey, I have this really cool idea. What would you like? You know, what do you think of this? And then... I wrote the draft, and I mean, we, we literally got Devil's Night done, and I think in a week. Oh, very cool. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it happened really fast. It was really cool. Great. All right, so here's a really tough question for you. Oh, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right, so the supernatural coming of age is a common theme or trope in many White Wolf games. Mm-hmm. So, which game do you think would mesh best with Gabriella's own coming-of-age story. Gosh, you know, I I kind of envisioned her coming-of-age to be more really World of Darkness focused, to be not about vampire or anything like that, just because I really felt that her character was kind of the strength of what the World of Darkness was all about, and that's that's partially where I envisioned her to be is in this world where she's not even sure, you know, vampires or anything else like that exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could see her being really strong for a mortals-only game. But of course, I, being a vampire fan as much as I am, I, I could also see how this particular character would really freak out, you know, if you can drink. Yeah, I got you. All right, well, that was kind of a cheap shot, because I was trying to think about this before, and I was thinking that she doesn't really uh, specifically emulate any of the other games. And right. that's really cool, because she's going to be something unique, whether you put her in Promethean or into Changeling, or even maybe put her into Mage the Ascension. Right. Yeah, Mage, I mean, that's that's a really good point, too. And and that's part of the reason why, you know, when I had the idea, I, I specifically wanted her to be a mortal with some form of superpower, and the pyrokinesis came out of Devil's Night, where it's Halloween and people set fires around the city and whatnot. But that's part of the reason why I wanted to have something not tied to any game line so that you could pop it into anyone but for me you know it it was really thinking about what the world of darkness was i just think it's this terrible world where everything like i said is not cut and dried it's not where you can just make a simple decision and go on with your night sometimes you have to make a tough call and this is definitely one of them if you know depending upon how your game goes you can end up killing her that's tough in a game to do yeah indeed so monica uh, do you have any other projects that you want to tell us about? Uh, maybe talk a bit about uh, Queen of the Crows, because that story is definitely not what I expected. <laughs> Did you read it? Did you happen to read it? I have. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's very unusual. The reason why I developed this, it's it's one of the first enhanced ebooks, And this, I believe, comes from partly being influenced by having a large 
background in gaming and especially the enhanced PDFs that are so readily available. I mean, there's some really gorgeous eBooks out there. The idea behind it was I wanted to kind of stretch my boundaries out a little bit more outside the gaming industry and try to show people, you know, I can write different things, tell different stories that aren't in the normal or usual way. And this particular ebook is set in the 1860s in a Native American time. And it's, it's an urban fantasy where it's this Native American shaman that has to make this terrible decision. But creating that, I wanted to give my readers or potential fans an experience. And to do that, I added a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, there's the inspiration, the first draft. There's a full color illustration of the main antagonist. Her name is Maho Chapi. And there's a whole bunch of other things in there. And I, I wanted to be able to give something that you could really sink your teeth into and just kind of play around with the idea that this is an ebook. And it's been great. The ebook trailer, a man by the name of James Semple, who's done work for Pelgrane Press, he composed the music for the ebook trailer, and it's very creepy. And we've, you know, Leanne Buckley did the illustration. She's done a lot of exalted stuff, and it's it's just been really good. I mean, it's it's very unusual, and the feedback I've been getting so far has been positive. Great, great. So I have one last question for you, Monica, and this is the question that we ask every interviewee, except for Matt McElroy. Uh- <laughs> All right. So this question is, if you could be a household appliance, which would you be and why? Hmm, If I had to be a household appliance, probably my game controller. (laughs) Your game controller? What, like Xbox or something? Uh, Yeah, I'm, well, I'm sorry. I'm currently playing Dragon Age right now. Can't you tell? Um, (laughs) Yeah, I guess, you know what? I guess I really would be, um, for a household appliance, a generic household appliance... Well, Eddie Webb said his iPhone, so I think your game controller is okay. Well, other than that, I was just going to say an oven, because I just heat up all this, you know, delicious food, and... All right, that works, too. Well, (laughs) Monica, thank you very much. It's been a very fun interview. Yeah, absolutely. This was a lot of fun, and I appreciate being on the show. You push open the creaking door to the ruined castle and step inside. The moldering finery bearing the crest of the noble family that once ruled here, a bat in flight, adorns the walls. Lightning flashes revealing the stocky form of a well-dressed man in an antique suit, standing on the stairwell leading up into the darkness of the castle. He has a monocle and a large aquiline nose. The strange light from the windows gives his flesh a purplish cast. He smiles welcomingly, save for the malevolent light in his eyes. As he opens his mouth to speak, you see sharp white fangs. Ah, greetings! One, two, three, four, five foolish adventurers who have dared to violate the sanctity of my home. Soon I will have one, two, three, four, five new undead servants serving my will. Ah, 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 ah. All right, and we're back, but it's just me this time. So here's some of the cool upcoming stuff with Darker Days Radio. Of course, we have the Darker Days Contest, which is coming up. Um, This is for the Rapid Fire episode, Darker Days episode 22. And what we're looking for is a five to seven minute clip and 300 to 500 words of text, which is describing one of the game lines. You should go into detail about the different splats, the antagonists, maybe about the powers a little bit, and some of the political factions. 
I've only gotten three submissions so far. Uh, well, one for Wraith, one for Wraith the Great War, and another for Kindred of the East. So there's some pretty gaping holes in this lineup so far, and it'll really help me out if we can get some more submissions. And just as a reminder, we've got three $10 gift certificates to drive through RPG for those people that win. And as an added bonus, an extra prize is that if I don't have to do too much work for this episode, we will finally see the return of the secret frequency. On a slightly sadder note, I just received word that the Wild Game Instructions radio network is going off the air. We've had uh, some great history with the network, uh, especially since Vince made it, and he was one of the original hosts of Darker Days. But honestly, since the Hidden Grid is no longer going to be very active, it didn't seem like a very logical idea to keep the network going. However, Mirage Arcana and Darker Days are both going to be going strong, and we're pretty excited to see where the future takes us. So in the meantime, since Darker Days won't have any forums, I highly encourage you to check out facebook.com slash darkerdaysradio. That's a very good way to get in touch with us and just discuss the show a little bit. In addition, uh, another great way to get in touch and send in like a message for a mailbag segment is, uh, well, Mark, what's that email address again? Darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Thanks, Mark. And hopefully we can maybe get a website going uh, in April or May. I'm a little busy right now, so I don't feel like uh, taking on that responsibility, but that seems like a good thing to do in the future. So instead of our usual heavy metal outro, I was just thinking that maybe we play something a bit more somber, just to remember the Wild Games Productions Radio Network.